morning, everybody. Every single message I do, a little secret, every single message I like, I go upstairs and I practice for like an hour and every time I'm really nervous. Um, so I'm always really nervous. I'm a little nervous this time, like a little bit nervous. I'm gonna tell you why I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous because the, the past couple weeks I have been um, appalled, disgusted by sexual assault allegations, like really appalled and really disgusted by them. And I've been appalled and disgusted by um, uh, the one in Alabama in particular. And I know I, I don't wanna get political at church, but, but I, I struggle uh, because this person, Roy Moore, who's been accused of sexual assault, has decided to hide behind the Bible in order to defend himself, right? So he said, well, in the Bible, it says that Joseph and Mary were married and they're probably a girl and a man. And so, and sort of leave it at that. And I'm like, oh man, Ooh, that is brutal. That's abhorrent. And then I look in the Bible and sure enough, there's plenty of instances of girls being married to men in the Bible. There's plenty of instances of patriarchy. There's plenty of instances of women being raped. There's plenty of instances of women uh, being looked at as property. And that's a problem. It's a real problem. And so I'm like, how did we get to that place where that is okay? How did we get to that place? And not only how do we get to that place, but why is our church different? What are we doing to address this issue? Why are we a church that I believe, and I really believe this, and this is not an exaggeration, why are we a church that I believe is going to be for the coming generations? Why are we a church that I believe will be a church that, that, that first of all, will say that that does not work, Roy Moore, or anybody else who ever wants to do that, uh, but instead be a church for the next 500 years. I believe that we are on the cusp of something where we can be that church, okay? I believe it. I'm excited about it. I want to tell you about it. And so here's what I want to tell you. We have to have a history lesson, all right? You guys down for a little history? You have no choice. You have no choice. All right, how many people have heard of Martin Luther? A few of us, good. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, he nailed something called the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle. The reason he did this is because he saw problems and issues in Christianity that needed to be fixed. Uh, namely, the problem that he saw was that when you would go to church, uh, the priest was speaking Latin and the priest was reading the Bible in Latin and nobody else had access to the Bible, okay? And so pretend that you are an Italian farmer and you're like, well, I better go to church and you show up and there's the priest speaking in Latin and the Bible's in Latin, and you have no clue what, what's going on, right? But that's the way it was. And the priest would say to you in Italian, oh, what the Bible says is that you aren't going to be saved unless you pay this much money. It's called indulgences, right? And so all these poor farmers in Italy are like, well, I guess I better pay these indulgences because that's the way I go to heaven. And it was a scam. It was a scam, right? And so Martin Luther comes along, and he nails these 95 theses, right? And the, the, two, major, uh, the two major things that he decides to say, he says, number one, it's not about the priest, Okay, and it's not about Latin, all right? It's about the Bible. You should have access to the Bible and you should be able to look at the Bible and have authority from the Bible. And then he says, and it's not by you paying an indulgence that's gonna save you. He says, your faith alone is going to save you. Now, these are the two big things he says. And a lot of other people were saying it, but, but Luther comes along like, at, at the perfect time. Like, like Christianity is on, is on the cusp of something. It's either gonna die out or it's gonna take on a new form and it takes on a new form and all of a sudden the Bible is given to everybody and anybody who wants to read it can read it in their own language. And you also get like, um, you know, a bunch of new denominations because there's literally millions of different ways that people translate the Bible and read the Bible. So now that you have 40 something thousand denominations because of it, uh, but that's a good thing. And then not only that, but, but then you're not like beholden to this priest speaking another language. Now it's like, no, what does the Bible say? 
that, what, what is, how, how does my faith look, right? And this is generally a good thing. I can tell you that we are here today as a church because 500 years ago, Martin Luther decided to nail, this, nail these theses on the wall. We following along? We good? All right, now let me tell you why it's bad, okay? It's bad because as you are developing and reading your scripture and figuring out new ways to look at God, people started to adopt different theories about who God was. And so they're around Roman gods and they're around Greek gods. And at this time, they're also exploring South America, Latin America, and what is now Mexico. So they're exploring those gods as well. And all of those gods have something in common. All of those gods are angry gods, okay? They're angry gods and those gods need blood sacrifices in order to be appeased. All right, we got that. We're following along. And so as people now open our Bible, the Christian Bible, and they're reading, and they've been exposed to these other gods, they're like, hmm, does our God, is our God an angry God? Does our God need blood to be appeased too? Is, is that what's going on? And a lot of people said, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. Our God's an angry God who needs to be appeased through a blood sacrifice. And so we create something that uh, becomes widely popular in Europe. It becomes widely popular in America. And I would dare say, uh, if we've been to church, if we grew up in the church, this is the theology that we believe and adhere to. And it's called substitutionary atonement, okay? And what that means is it means this. It means that our God is separate from us. And the reason our God is separate from us is because we're sinners, okay? And if you hear this all the time, you'll hear, um, we're not worthy to be alive. We sh we're worthy of death. Um, we're sort of disgusting, and not only are you disgusting before God, but so is your sister, and so is your grandma, and even the nice bodega guy. Like, everybody's deserving of death. Um, has anybody, like, grown up hearing that? Like, I'm deserving of death. How many people have grown up in this theology? A few of us? All right. And so we've said that, and then we say, well, God can't stand us, so God needs blood. And so the blood comes in the form of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ dies, and God is now happy with us, okay? God is now happy with us, and God is at a place uh, where God now can see us as good. We are covered by the blood of the lamb. Does this sound familiar to people? Are we hearing this, okay? Sounds somewhat familiar. All right, and so what happens now is now you have a transaction. You were seen as bad. God didn't love you. Jesus comes. Jesus dies for you, your sins, um, and now this transaction has taken place. You believe the transaction, because that's the next step. You believe this transaction happens. And then, because of that, you are now considered saved. How many people have heard that word, right? We're considered saved now, okay? And so this is a substitutionary atonement theology. And I'm oversimplifying here. So if you want to learn more, I can give you more, all right? I can give you books and stuff. I'll make you really work hard for it. All right. So let's think about this logic for a minute. I just want to take a step back and think of it. Think, like, look at it, all right? Let's just say, let's just say that, that uh, you owe me money. Let's say you, let's, let's say you owe me $100,000. That feels like a lot of money to me, okay? Let's say you owe me $100,000. And uh, I was like, this is a debt that you owe me. You owe me this money, and I don't like you right now, right? And you were like, yeah, whatever. I'm still running away to Belize or wherever you're going to run to, right? And you do. You run away to Belize with your money, and, uh, and I find you. And I call you and I say to you, so-and-so, you owe me a debt. You know, you're a bad person and I don't like you. But good news, I killed my child today, so we're all good. Do you believe we're all good? And you'd be like, you killed your child today? I killed my child today. 
So my wrath is satisfied. We're good. What would you do? You'd most likely call the cops, right? You'd be like, this person is out of their mind, and I know I owe them money, but they need help, right? That's what you would do. And yet, this is the logic by which we worship our God. We worship our God by that logic. We say that a God wants to be separate from us, can't stand us, we owe our God a debt, and our God, our God kills somebody to make that debt okay. That's the logic that we use, okay? Now, I struggle with this, and I also hear people going, uh, yeah, but there is a debt to be paid. We are sinners, and indeed, we are sinners. Don't get me wrong. There is sin, and I'm gonna get to the sin of the cross in a minute. But uh, uh, a pastor that I really respect and I love dearly once said to me, he said to me, there's a debt to be paid. He said, when a lamp breaks, there's darkness and somebody's got to buy a new lamp. So you either pay for the new lamp or you sit in darkness, right? That's just logic. That's justice. And I said to this pastor, I said, with all due respect, if God is God, is God still beholden to justice? Like, does God have to follow justice the way we have to follow justice? I said, if God is God, can't God just produce light? out of God being the infinite and unimaginable and us being loved? And he didn't like that. And so um, what it made me think, though, it made me think about justice. It made me think about we have this human construct called justice, and it's a good thing. And the question I have now is God beholden to that justice. Now, what do I mean by that? Is God sitting up there going, wow, you're my creation, and I love you deeply. I love you deeply. You're my creation. Yes, you're sinners. I get it. You're not perfect, but you're my creation. I love you deeply, and I just want to forgive you. But justice, justice feels differently. And justice wants me to kill somebody. So I got to kill somebody because justice, I don't want to mess with justice later. That doesn't make our God the infinite and unimaginable God. That makes our God a God who is within the confines of a human justice system that we created. So who is God then? Is God this monstrous God that needs blood? Is God this monstrous God that, that, uh, that needs to have justice? Is, is that who God is? And the truth of the matter is when we look at this, we say, yes, that's who God is because it means that I'm saved if I believe it. If I believe it, then I'm saved because if I believe that God needed a death and Jesus dies and then I'm covered in the blood of the lamb and I believe that happened, well, then I'm saved and that's it. Like, like Martin Luther said, it's by my faith in that that I am saved. And not only did Martin Luther said that, but then he said, I can look in my Bible and know that it's true. So now I'm looking at what is in the Bible and what is in the Bible. I'm not looking, I'm looking at what's in it, not why it might be in there, not the context behind it, not how the Spirit's working through it, but just what is in there. And so if the Bible tells me that I can oppress people uh, because there's oppression in the Bible, well, then I can oppress people. And if the Bible lets me stand behind my sexual assault, well, then I'm gonna do it because I've made this transaction. It's done, I'm saved. It's about us becomes about us, our own personalities, our own sins, our own thoughts. It's about us. Brian Zond says it this way. He says, when we view the cross as a payment to God for our personal debt of sin, it ignores the deep problem of systemic sin. When the cross becomes nothing more than paying off an offended God, we leave unchallenged the massive structures of inequality and sin that so grotesque, grotesquely grotesquely, I can't even say that word, grotesquely distort humanity. If the cross is Jesus simply purchasing our ticket, our get-out-of-jail-free card, then the principalities and powers are left unchallenged to run the world the way they always have. We sing these songs. I sing these songs. I went to a church in Philly, and I sang this song, and I love this song. And the song went like this. It went, 
Till on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God is satisfied. We believe in this angry, wrathful God who needs blood to see us as okay. And it makes us care only about us. So if we care only about us, then, uh, then questions arise. And so let's look at questions of justice. Let's take refugees or uh, undocumented immigrants. If they come in the country, uh, sometimes I'm like, well, why would Christians ever want them out of the country? We're called to be compassionate. We're called to be good. And yet I go, but, but it's justice. If they felt like God was beholden to justice, well, then every human being has to be beholden to justice. And if you're here illegally, that's not justice. So you should go. It starts to affect the way we think of things socially. My favorite and it's not my favorite, it's the one that bothers me more than anything else in the world, is when you are on social media and I'm on social media and we're talking about sin issues, we're talking about racism, we're talking about oppression, we're talking about assault, whatever, and somebody comes along and goes, this isn't a social issue, this is a sin issue. And people just need to give their lives to Jesus. I want to reach through my computer and punch that person in the face. And the reason I want to do that is because when you look at that theology that says it's about me and about the fact that God died for me and now I have my ticket, it means that I don't have any responsibility to work on any of those social issues at all because I'm good. And really, if you want to fix the social issues, everybody else should just get their ticket too and they'll be good. It absolves us of any responsibility working on systemic sin, systemic structure, systemic issues, oppression, slavery, militarism, and so on and so forth. It stops us from doing that. And this is where we are. The American church has adopted this theology. They've adopted the theology in terms of giving. When I think about giving, we say, oh, this is great, I'm going to give, but I'm only going to give so long as this blesses me because really church is all about me and my relationship with God and what I believe, do I have my ticket? I'm only gonna uh, give uh, as long as the church meets my needs, right? Not what's the church doing on the whole, but what's the church doing for me? And if that is a good thing, then, 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 then that's when I'll give. Or I'm not gonna give at all because the truth is I already have my ticket. Thank God I'm blessed, right? Thank God for God's grace. I have my ticket and, and I'm ready to go. And the Bible says like I'm saved by faith. So if I don't wanna give right now because I'm saving up some money, whatever it might be, I don't have to. It's a theology of scarcity. The whole thing becomes a theology of scarcity. And we are at a crossroads. We are at a crossroads with this theology. We're at a crossroads of a theology that says the wrath of God needs to be satisfied for us. We're at a crossroads with a theology that says it's only about us and our sin issues. We're at a crossroads. People are leaving the church in droves. People are leaving this church and people have said to me, Jonathan, I don't believe in, that, in God anymore. And I say to them, good, I don't believe in that God either. I don't believe in the angry God that needs blood so that I can look good. I don't believe in that God. And they'll say, well, I don't believe, uh, you know, that Jesus had to die for my sins. And I'll say, well, I believe that Jesus had to die for the sins of the world, but I don't think it's personal. I don't think it's about us, but we've made it about us. So we are on the cusp of something new. We're on the cusp of something big where this church or where this Christianity either falls apart because it's starting to fall apart already. When people like Roy Moore can justify their actions based on this kind of theology, the church is starting to fall apart. Where do we go from here? What do we do? I love the passage that Kayla read earlier. It's an amazing passage to me and I want to read it for you again. She says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me, will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father 
and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Why do I love this so much? I love this so much. Here, you want your drink? Oh, yeah. Okay. I love this so much because there are these disciples and they're scared to death because they don't know where Jesus is going. They're like, Jesus, where are you going? What's happening? We don't know. We followed you. And Jesus goes, listen, I'm going to go away. But check this out. You know all the things I've been doing? You know how I've been, you know, how I've been telling people it's not about power, it's about withholding power and loving your enemies? And you see how I'm healing people who are sick? And you see how I'm taking people who are told that they're on the outside and I'm bringing them to the inside? And you see how I'm bringing equity to the oppressed? You see how I'm doing this? You're going to do even greater things than what I did. Seriously, believe it. The Holy Spirit's going to come. Just ask and this is going to happen. And I think that's where we are as a church. That this passage is for us more than any other time as a church. And it starts by us looking at the cross differently. It starts by reclaiming the good news of the gospel. How do we reclaim the good news of the gospel? Do I believe that Jesus died for my sins and the sins of the world? Absolutely. 120%. Let me say this real quick. Whenever we want to know who God is, we look at Jesus. Whenever we want to know who, what God is saying, we look at what Jesus is saying. Whenever we want to know what God is doing, we look at what Jesus is doing, okay? And so do I believe that Jesus is, is dying for sins? A hundred percent, why? Because Jesus is on the cross. And what is the cross? It's not a transaction so that we get, a jail, get out of jail free card. It's perfect love coming into the world. And it's perfect love being hurt, murdered, like murdered. Perfect love is being murdered. Perfect love is being uh, torn apart. Perfect love is being tortured. Why? Because we don't want perfect love. We'd much rather have power, right? We'd much rather keep our structures in place that keep other people down. We'd much rather fight our wars. We would much rather have rugged individualism because individualism absolves us from any real communal responsibility. We'd rather have those things, right? And this is the stuff that kills Jesus. And what is God saying? What is God saying during this death? God's not going, finally, now I can see these people as clean. He's not saying that. God's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God's forgiving. He's forgiving for our complicitness in the structure of sin. God's mourning. God's going, God, why have you forsaken me? God, why is it happening to where people can't see you any longer, that you've become a construct that is all about power and freedom when that's never who you were meant to be? God, why have you forsaken me? Why can't we see you? It's morning. There's the robber on the right, and Jesus says, truly you'll be with me in paradise, and it's inviting in. It's inviting in the lowest of low. The cross is not a transaction. It's not a bloody transaction. The cross is a place where forgiveness is brought. The cross is a place where all of our worst sins, our systemic sins, the most difficult sins, the sins that have messed up this world, they all come upon Jesus. Jesus absorbs them all on the cross and says you are forgiven and says that God is there for you and rises again to show you that he is not defeated by these sins. The cross isn't so that God changes God's mind about us. It's not that. God doesn't need the cross to change our, God's mind about us. The cross is so we change our mind about who God is. God has always been loving. God has always seen us as a partner in God's creation. So God is saying, see the cross? I'm absorbing the sin and I defeat it in the resurrection. And we are building shalom. We're building peace in this world. And I want you, my creation, who I love dearly, to partner with me in bringing this peace back to this place. And that is what our church is doing. 
That is the good news of the gospel message. That is what our church is up to. That is why I think we are on the precipice of something new, something that's for generations, something that could last for the next 500 years because it's not just our church. There are bunches of churches across America and it's starting to happen. We're starting to say this theology, this broken theology over here, a theology of scarcity, it doesn't work. Our God is greater and our God is more loving and our God's restorative justice is something that knows no bounds. That's the God that we follow. So what does that mean for us in this room today? Oh man, it means that we repent. What do you think of that word repent? (laughs) I like it actually, because it's a word that means change your mind. Change your heart, change your mind. That's what it means. I love that. We change our minds. Change your minds about who God is. Is God an angry God in need of blood so that you can be seen as okay? Or is God a God that says, I love you so much that I'm willing to absorb the sin of the world on the cross and then defeat it? Let's repent. Let's repent of the idea that we want our Jesus on the cross like Braveheart yelling, freedom, right? That makes a really good story, right? And he breaks out and he defeats the Romans. And instead our God says, nah, it's forgiveness. I yell forgiveness. That's not as cool of a movie. (laughs) Let's repent of that. Let's repent of all the times. We've all done it. You know, so some people might say, like, well, you're, you're not talking about our sin issues. Oh, we have sin issues. It means we're repenting of all the times. God has said, I love you. Partner it with peace. Partner with me in peace. And we've said, no, nah, I want to do other things that disrupt peace. Because everybody in this room has done other things that have disrupted peace. And if you say you haven't, <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> don't say you haven't. It's not true. It means we repent. And here's the thing about this. I think this church, I think this church as we move forward into a direction where this is good news, I think we're out on the edges. Like I I think we're out on the edges with other churches who are just figuring out something new. I feel like eyes are being opened and I feel like people who are saying, I don't believe in this God and who have been disaffected are coming back and they're saying, oh, this, this is a God I believe in. This is the thing that makes sense. I think in some ways we're called exiles. And I love what Diana Butler Bass says. She's like, new birth happens at the edges where people are willing to wonder, to let go of what is settled and comfortable and walk into the desert. And I think this church, our church, is taking that walk. We are walking into a just and generous Christianity, which means that we are about unity and not division. It's not a question of like, well, you didn't believe this and so you're gonna go to hell. It's a question of how will you join us in bringing beauty and heaven here on earth, this kingdom, the way God wants us to do? How do we unify and how, how is it that every single time we draw a dividing line, Jesus is on the other side of that dividing line. Let's erase that and get to a place where we are working with God and bringing this peace. That is what our church does. And so we do it through saying that things like Nomi Network matter, or the oppressed, those who are broken down, are lifted up, right? We want to see that happen. And we do it in ways where we serve refugees. We serve Syrian refugees. And just recently, we served a group of Haitian refugees, which is amazing because we want to see people lifted up. We want to see peace brought. And that's what matters. Not your get out of jail free card. This is what the resurrection's about, bringing peace that God intends. Two years ago, our church became an inclusive church, an affirming church of the LGBT, uh, LGBT community, and it was uh, controversial, and it still is controversial. And people left, people were like, that's not the way we do it. And I was like, you know, for years I was told, well, it's in the Bible. It's just in the Bible. Don't, it's just in the Bible. And then I look at Jesus, and if Jesus is what God is saying, there's never a time, not a single time, where Jesus says, you know what? I'm leaving you on the outs. 
I'm leaving you on the outs. I'm leaving you on the outs every single time. Every single time, anyone who's ever been marginalized, Jesus says, I'm bringing you in. I'm bringing you in. I'm bringing you in. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what our church is saying. That's what we say. This is how we are doing things differently. Our church, I believe, is a place where we want to pray and we want to meditate on the goodness that is God, a God who doesn't need blood, but a God who has seen us as God's children the entire time. And so we set up things like small groups and queer communion and writers guilds and all those ways so that we have space for us to get together and worship and celebrate the fact that this is what our church is doing, that our God is a God of mystery who invites us into peace. That is good news. Our church is partnering with organizations across the U.S. doing similar things. We're a part of something called the Open Network because there are other little churches here and there scattered all over going, hey, do you still believe in this bloody theology anymore? Neither do we. Let's go spread some good news. And so church, I'm calling you to this. I'm calling you to be exiles with me. I'm calling you to go out like Moses went out, like the Israelites went out, like Jesus went out. He had no place to lay his head. I'm calling you to go out like Martin Luther went out. And I'm calling you to go out like Martin Luther King went out and like Nelson Mandela went out. All the others who have gone out and said, we're doing this wrong. There is a better way, a more unifying way, a way that brings peace. And let's go out and let's bring peace to this place together. And it starts right here and it starts now at this church. And frankly, frankly speaking, If we don't do it, there's no point in having this church. Frankly speaking, if we're not going to give this good news, I'd rather quit. I'd rather go work somewhere else. Probably Disney World. (laughs) Because this is how much I believe in it. And here's what I can tell you. I can tell you this right now. This church does not happen. We are not the church for generations upon generations upon generations. We're not the church for our, for our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids. We're not gonna be that church if we don't give to this thing. That's the bottom line. The scarcity of giving ends as well because we know it's not about us and it's not about our blessing. It's about a movement that goes way beyond us and it goes way beyond our blessing and this church is a part of that movement and it doesn't happen if we're not giving to it. And so I invite you to give to this movement. I invite you to give to what this church and so many other churches across the country are doing. I invite you to give to this journey that we are on, this exile journey towards the good news of the gospel message that says God is not a wrathful God where his wrath needs to be satisfied, but God is a loving God who has always loved us, who says I take all the sins on me and defeat them and now you help me bring peace. That is our church. And we don't do it unless we give to it. After service, you're going to have an opportunity to give. You're going to, baskets are going to be passed around. You're going to have an opportunity to give, and I invite you to give to it. There's a computer in the back where you can set up a recurring gift. I think what we're doing is so important because we are on the cusp of something. But just like 500 years ago with Martin Luther, I think we're at the next 500 years, and we're at a crossroads where people are going to leave, and Christianity is going to become this thing, or we can create a new just and generous expression of our church, of the Christian church, of the good news of the gospel. And I want you to join us in it. Amen? Let's pray. (sighs) Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your justice. Your justice is always restorative. Your justice tells us that we've always been loved. Your justice tells us that we are not... um, that we are not you know, des- deserving of death, but yes, we're broken, but your justice tells us that, that, that you wipe us clean, you make us clean. 
and you allow us to work with you to bring peace. That is your justice. And so thank you for being that just and generous God, and we pray that in return we are a just and generous church. Pray this in your name. Amen.